Welcome to the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Today's guest is D.B. Weiss, co-creator of the HBO series Game of Thrones. In this episode, D.B., or Dan as he is known familiarly, speaks about how Game of Thrones came to be. First, reading A Song of Ice and Fire with co-creator David Benioff and believing they understood how to adapt this complex narrative to the screen. Second, convincing author George R.R. R. Martin and HBO that he and David, who had never run a television series before, could helm this Goliath of a production. Then came shooting a pilot, which had to be almost entirely reshot due to flaws in the narrative. But despite it all, Game of Thrones became a worldwide cultural phenomenon, with more than 32 million viewers per episode across all platforms, and regularly crashing HBO's servers on Sunday nights. Dan also talks about growing up outside Chicago, attending Wesleyan University and other writing programs, and the profound impact that teachers had in encouraging his writing from a young age. Dan speaks about wanting to convey the same approach, show-running Game of Thrones, keeping clear channels of communication across multiple countries and production teams, recognizing and nurturing talent, and knowing when to suppress ego for the good of the enterprise, a value that he and David Benioff share. D.B. Weiss on medieval realism, human intrigue, and the Iron Throne. This is The Supporting Cast. D.B. Weiss, welcome to The Supporting Cast. Thank you. It is a, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you. And just to clarify, you go by Dan informally, is that right? Yeah, yes. Dan is great. There was already a Dan Weiss in the Writers Guild of America when I joined, so I had to choose something else. Got it. The first question I'm asking, now that we are, I don't know, 13 months or so past the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic and everyone's lives have changed, everyone in entertainment and all of us personally and those of us with kids in school, my first question is just about you and how you're doing personally. How are you and Andrea and your kids doing? We've been, you know, it's it's kind of hard to complain. We've none of us. Uh, we were lucky enough to not get ill and and to, to get our vaccines. And uh, you know, Leo is back uh, on his way to Harvard Westlake, which he could not have been more excited about. I mean, yeah, the look on his face when he came back from school that first day it was like he had just spent all day at Disneyland. He was wow. he was over the moon about the whole thing. Just being able to finally to see his friends in person and. And, you know, have some facsimile of, of normality return to his life meant the world to him. And it's a strange thing for him because he was so excited to go to Harvard Westlake. But the whole thing happened and, and the, the choice was made at the beginning of the pandemic anyway. That's right. And so I guess there was kind of that irrational optimism that we all sort of shared that somehow this was going to end of its own right. accord magically after a few weeks or two or three months. And so the, the anticipation of being able to get into the actual school and get to the actual campus was, it had been so long in coming to, to finally be able to get out of the car and step onto the HW campus just was, I think it was almost took on a surreal quality to him because he'd been wow. waiting for it for so long. That's so great to hear. How have you guys been holding up? We've been fine. I have a two and a half year old daughter. We have another on the way and it's a, a pretty decent time to have a two and a half year old. Actually, they're oh, not yeah. really in school yet. And congratulations on the, on the new, the forthcoming arrival. Your daughter probably thinks that this is the best thing that ever happened. She gets more of mommy and daddy, you know, home. All of a sudden you're, she's the only person on earth for like a whole year. Exactly. Until her little sister comes in a couple months, and that's going to be an, <laughs> well, an interesting awakening. At least, so. at least she had her moment in the sun. She did. She yeah. did. So now I'm curious about kind of how the last, 
I don't know, year or so has gone for you professionally. You guys signed a, a big deal with Netflix. Obviously, you've also been, I know I was up in Portland. I have family in Portland and you yeah. were also in Portland recently shooting something. We were there at the same yeah, time. Yeah. So if you want to talk about <laughs> that project or something else. Ever, ever since Thrones ended, we moved over to Netflix and been having a, a great time. And it's, it's just a fantastic environment. But of, of course, the pandemic in general really upended everybody's ability to carry on as normal and do the things that we do and it, it threw a whole bunch of obstacles in the way of that and there was that this first couple of headless chicken weeks that everybody spent like not knowing what to do with themselves and buying toilet paper kind of, <laughs> uh, yeah like would not knowing whether to stockpile supplies and, and then once things settled down we got moving and and we actually largely thanks to my friend and producer greg shapiro we pushed a movie into production in what happened to be not by any design but what ended up being kind of the height of the the surge of the pandemic mm -hmm. where we were shooting in in november in portland which was spared relatively speaking yeah you know the worst of it but but it was when la was going through the worst of the worst but we, somehow we managed to, to get it shot and uh it's called metal lords and it should be coming out i would guess sometimes towards the end of the year and it's called Metal Lords? Metal Lords. It's about, and it's a music, uh, but it's a music movie, not necessarily a... When you hear D.B. Weiss say something about Metal Lords, you think of uh, <laughs> Westeros. <laughs> no, no that's not, not like plate mail and, and armor, and uh, <laughs> right. but more like the music. And it's about two heavy metal kids who are in a high school where exactly two kids care about heavy metal. Wow. They're the only ones. So they're like a Last of the Mohicans story about heavy metal kids. It was a lot of fun to make, and it felt as... as difficult as it was to produce something under those circumstances it was uh we all felt really fortunate to be doing it because that time there really was very little in production so the other thing that you guys are celebrating i suppose right now is that april of 2021 marks the 10-year anniversary of the pilot of <laughs> game of thrones uh coming on oh, to yeah. hbo God. but uh, you know as That's far as weird. what i have read is that really it was five years earlier that this idea kind of began with you and david yeah. in 2006 and so i'm curious first as you guys discussed adapting a song of ice and fire to the screen i know that you obviously had to pitch this to hbo at some point but the first pitch from what i understand was to george rr R. martin yes the author right. and so could you tell me a little bit about i'm curious about that conversation sitting down with him and trying to convince him that you guys could do this series <laughs> and how you could do this series. It was frightening because we, we'd kind of gotten into the having been already been doing it for a while and been working in Hollywood for a while, kind of gotten into mm -hmm. the rhythm of putting yourself forward for things and having people either say yes or say no. And when you first start out, the first time somebody says no, it's devastating and you think the walls are going to falling around you. And then by the 30th time someone has said no, it just no just becomes a, a part of your workday. And so you just yeah. learn to kind of take it in stride and move on. But this was different because it was having read the books, we kind of felt in our bones that, that there really wasn't anything else like this. And you know, we both read a lot and we both read a lot with an eye towards what might potentially be a good adaptation for film, yeah. television or whatever. And we just never read anything that seemed as ready-made for something fresh and exciting and excellent as, as George's books. And so, and can I stop you there, though? Yeah, sure, uh, sure. It's such a complex plot line. There's all these simultaneous plot lines happening yeah, yeah. all at once. And even though the drama and the intrigue was there, wasn't there also, as great as it was the first time you read it, an inherent challenge in bringing something like that to the screen. Yeah, definitely. And we knew, I mean, for that reason, it's funny, they had been, it had been sent out, the books had been sent out. This was, it was 2006, remember? So right. HBO had already turned TV into a different place than it had been before with The Sopranos and The Wire and Deadwood and shows like this. But, yep. but it still, it was, Hollywood was still a very feature movie centric. And so the books had been sent to us with that in mind, with features in mind. And it took about 100 pages into the first 900-page book to realize that there was no feature version of this that was going to yeah. be viable. There was an executive at one studio who called and said that we should, we really needed to talk to him because he'd cracked it, you know. 
And it was like, it, meaning the, the movie version of it. But we knew, we just, we knew in our bones that there was no movie version of it to crack. And we knew that at the time, you know, this was, there was not really the, a, a Netflix as production entity. There wasn't an Amazon. There, the, the, right. the venues for something like this, the production entities that had the resources to make something of this scale, there was only one. We knew it was an HBO show. So yeah. in a way, there were two kind of very fraught situations where we had a meeting with George. And if George said no, then it was dead. Right. And so that meeting, we went to the Palm for lunch. We, we were there for three and a half hours with George. And the sun was going down and the waiters were cleaning up the tables for dinner. And we were still sitting there, I don't know, drinking more and more iced tea and, and talking about it and at a certain point he he kind of gave us the the test question of who who did we think john snow's mother was which <laughs> luckily we'd been after our second read of the books before meeting george we'd been discussing amongst ourselves and we had a pretty good handle on what the right answer was if you yeah and by the way don't give it away won't give it away but could if you're be reading people. with that question in mind the second time through it's actually if you're thinking about it, it actually yep, pops yep. out a little bit more. The first time through, it, it didn't pop out nearly as much. Anyway, we got it right. And mm. I'd like to believe that maybe he would have, our, our passion for the project would have led him to say yes to us, even if we got it wrong. But I'm not sure that he would have said yes to us if we got it wrong. You never know. Yeah. But yeah, I just it was a difficult because we couldn't make any grand claims about our competence as TV producers because we'd never produced any television before. <laughs> yeah. And so it was really kind of a giant leap of faith on George's part to say these guys who clearly know the books inside and out and who clearly understand what's great about the books that, that I wrote, these guys who've never done this before are still somehow going to do it without capsizing the boat. And then we, and with HBO, it was a very similar situation where we knew we, we there were a couple one or two other people we pitched to at the time, but we knew that none of them had, even if they said yes, they didn't have the resources necessary to make something like this. I mean, we didn't right. we weren't line producers, but we knew enough about from the feature side. We knew how much things costed, and we'd seen enough feature budgets to have a basic understanding of of, of what it would cost to make something like this, even on an accelerated at the time TV schedule and it just it wasn't viable anywhere besides HBO. So yeah, by we, that last season wasn't it costing 6 7 8 9 10 million dollars an episode? It would have been a, by the last season it would have been a lot more than that. Oh uh, wow. That was that was more the first season. Um, <laughs> but but you know, the first season was it was expensive but within the ballpark of it wasn't unheard of but as it went on yeah. it it got to a different place but but so but did we, your viewership. <laughs> it, yeah, it was. It was. I mean, we did know on some level that it, it was kind of an all-or-nothing proposition, where if there needed to be lots of people watching it to make it viable, right? And right. if there were, then we'd get to keep going. And if there weren't, then you know it would have been a, a valiant effort. But when we went into pitch Carolyn Strauss in uh, March of 2006, who was the president of HBO at the time, we didn't get into any of that stuff. We just tried to focus on in the first yeah. season and on what was at hand and and it was scary to go in and pitch carolyn strauss because we were told what a difficult pitch she was and how hmm. which she would be icy and steely and not smile at hmm. you and we really felt like we'd won a major victory when one of us made her laugh with something that we said over the course of the pitch and funny thing was that she said yes to a pilot and we wrote a pilot script and then over the course of the production, relatively early on, there was a changing of the guard at HBO and Carolyn stepped away from the network side and became producer on the show. And when she walked hmm. into the meeting as a producer the first time, we were like, how did this happen? We didn't, you know, no one informed us of this, but uh, and, and in very short order, she became one of our best friends on earth. It's one of the huh. funniest, warmest, best people we've ever had anything to do with and became like a sibling to the two of wow. us and it was just looking back at how we saw her and who we thought she was when we walked into that room to pitch her the first time we, it's kind of hilarious to us to look back huh. at when we're out at dinner with her now to look back at, at that perception to see how completely diametrically yeah. opposed it is to who she really is as a person but anyway hmm. she she could could have cared less really about fantasy she wasn't a genre person but for whatever reason she said, fine, I'll roll the dice and we'll order a pilot 
from you guys. And then over the next three years, it just, there were kind of a bunch of hurdles to clear and we ended yeah. up clearing them all off. And I think by the skin of our teeth and, you know, 2009, we actually started shooting a pilot of the thing, which uh, was itself kind of shocking that we'd even gotten to that place, you know? You mentioned that she wasn't a genre person, and I know for me and for others, I'm not necessarily a fantasy mm-hmm. person. I didn't grow up reading fantasy books, and, and and so for a lot of people, when they first saw oh, Game of Thrones, maybe not for me, but then once they started watching, they got hooked. And I'm curious if from the beginning, you had the sense that you wanted it to be, I guess, medieval realism is the, yeah. the phrase that's been used to describe it, almost like historical fiction, where the drama is coming from the human intrigue rather than sort of the magic and the sorcery, which are really cool, interesting elements, but not really what brings you back. What brings you back is what's going on with the Starks and the Lannisters and and the people. Yeah, I think that that some of that other stuff, it always held my attention, especially when I was younger, and it's it's fun for a while. And for two hours, done well, (laughs) it can definitely like grab you and like, whether it's neat whiz-bang effects and magic and all that kind of spectacle, for lack Mm -hmm. of a better word, whether it's that or whether it's really cool ideas and concepts, fantasy, science fiction ideas and concepts. I think those can pull people in and hold them for a while. But if you're, if you want to pull people in and hold them, not for two hours or three hours, but for 20, 30, 40, 60 hours, there's no spectacle that is going to be interesting enough to hold people's attention for 60 hours. The only thing that people are interested in for 60 hours is other people. Right. And that was when we read George's books, what really jumped out at us once we started to get the lay of the of the name landscape with the Starks and Lannisters <laughs> and Targaryens and figure Which is out. complicated. <laughs> it took a while. I mean, that was it was the kind of thing that I was maybe thinking about wondering whether or not this was the book for me when Bran got pushed out the window. The right. Thing, the thing that ends the pilot of the. Yes. Of the, not the huge spoiler to reveal what ends the pilot. And I, and right. I just, I, you know, and the situation surrounding uh, his exactly. getting pushed out the window. <laughs> what, uh, he is, what he is seeing from the window. I was like, oh, okay. So there's, that's happening. That just happened. <laughs> and I just, it was, it was just kind of like getting shot out of a cannon. And it just, you, every subsequent chapter, you kept getting shot out of a different cannon. And every subsequent chapter, I, I, we realized I was reading this book and I was like, I need to know what happens to this person. Not I need yeah. to know what happens in general, not I need to know what happens in this battle or you know, with this spell that somebody is casting. I need to know what happens to these people. And the fact that it was the to these people that I think made it really clear to us that this could be an HBO show because that's really what they did. You know, they, always, they took all their big shows were genre shows. Yeah. I mean, the Sopranos is a genre show. What genre was more tired and worn out than gangster stuff? But right. the Sopranos. Right. I remember I could pretend that I knew it was going to be brilliant from the beginning. When I first saw an ad for The Sopranos, I remember kind of rolling my eyes, thinking like, oh, man, another. We've seen this before. Just right? yet yeah. another East Coast gangster drama. And they took something that seemed familiar and played out, and they let you know, or David Chase let you know, that it wasn't familiar or played out at all. That there was a whole yeah. new human way into this kind of a story that would hold you for a long, long time. And we realized, and I did the same thing with the Western. It was to a lot of people, not to me because I love Westerns, but I, to a, you didn't see many Westerns because it was kind of dead in the water to a lot of people. And Deadwood mm-hmm. came along and gave you a very different version of that genre the wire did it with with you know cop dramas yeah and the wire also had a lot of intricacy to its plot lines yeah and it took a cop drama and it was like a cop drama is not just about the cops it's about yeah. everybody who makes up that human matrix that they're all sewn into together and the school system and yeah, the, the press the, the and cop, everything cop right? drama necessarily involves the school system necessarily involves the press necessarily involves right. the longshoremen who are you know tangentially <laughs> but importantly a part of whatever criminal enterprises are going on that the cop That's makes right. it a cop drama to begin with yeah all that stuff really let us go in there with a fair amount of confidence in saying that this kind of story is an hbo show or is is worthy of that kind of treatment even though on the surface it seemed like maybe it was something that was meant for for 13 year olds <laughs> right which is the show is is, is not really so then you make the pilot, 
And from what I read and understand, the first pilot didn't go so well <laughs> that you showed it and uh, you got some not so great feedback and you had to almost reshoot yeah. the entire thing. Is that right? Yeah. Well, the problem with not ever having done something complicated before is that you don't actually know all of the thousand things you need to know about how to successfully do something complicated. So we, <laughs> yeah, we, we, we made a lot of mistakes and, uh, there's information that you needed to know. I don't want to spoil anything, but there's information that you needed to know that people, really smart people that we showed it to, who do this for a living, watch the pilot and they didn't understand, like, oh, they're brother and sister. Like they they didn't right. pick that up from the show. Right. Because we knew right. it so well. There's that discrepancy between what you know and what somebody who's coming to something cold knows, and we missed it. But a whole bunch of other like just Visually, there were a bunch of things that, that needed work and just weren't because the, the tr visual treatment of it that we'd gotten behind really wasn't sufficient to the scope of the material. Yeah. And so we, we showed it to them and they were on the fence for a while. I think it was very mm. much a 50 50 proposition. And, you know, luckily, Richard Plepler and Mike Lombardo, luckily for us, they decided there was enough proof of concept in there, you know, that, that it was yeah. worth giving it another shot. And so we went back and we did end up reshooting most of the original pilot kind of folded into the shooting of the first season. We didn't just go reshoot the pilot. We shot the whole season and the pilot reshoots were worked into that, into that whole schedule. Timmy Van Patten, the, the, the great Timmy Van Patten did the first two episodes of the season and working with Tim on that specifically was, was a real amazing masterclass in, in just in how it's done. And he's the director of those two. He was Sorry. the director of the, of the, of the pilot and the second episode and just watching the way he approached story, watching the way he approached his crew. It was really, really educational for us. And mm. kind of, it was, it was kind of an object lesson in, in how to do it for us going forward. We learned a lot from him as we, as we did from so many of the people that we were lucky enough to work with over the years. And then the series launches from there and obviously breaks records for uh, streaming and for viewers and, and uh, piracy. legend is Don't sort forget of piracy and, pi and, and piracy. Unfortunately, that was, that was how we, that was how we really rated how we were doing. One thing I'm curious about, you mentioned that you were learning how to do things early on. You hadn't done it before. You were relying on really talented directors and, and got some leeway from the folks at HBO, but by the time the series gets going, you guys are shooting in Croatia mm -hmm. and Iceland and Malta and Morocco and Ireland and all these places, I assume sometimes simultaneously. Mm -hmm. When you, you and David are in charge of an operation that's that broad and going on in that many different locations, what's the leadership challenge for you two? And how did you handle different cultures being built in those different areas, yeah. different artists taking a different yeah, view yeah, yeah. on storylines in each of those areas, the communication. I mean, you mentioned Zoom is new for you, but yeah. I imagine you were having yeah. to watch dailies not in Croatia and not funny. in Iceland. It's funny. That's a really good point. And so much of it, we were lucky, the technological aspect of it all, like around 2010, which yeah. is when we were really shooting the first season. I don't think the show would have really been doable in the way that we did it much earlier than that just because hmm. the infrastructure you needed to communicate and to communicate with not just people sending emails or faxes or whatever but to send large amounts of information over the ocean in multiple directions every yeah. day like that that really was just kind of coming into place just in time for us to be able to take advantage of it and it was essential to us being able to do what we did but i think on a more basic human level one of the, the things that came out of the learning experience of, of doing the pilot and doing the pilot again it was just an approach towards communicating with all the members of your team who are doing this together i mean two people don't make a television show and 10 people don't make a television show or hundreds of people make a television show and you need to be communicating right. on a regular basis you know effectively and in a kind of open frictionless sort of way with a lot of them, you know, maybe not with yeah. 500 of them at once, but with this, say there's solids 50 to 100 people that you need to be communicating with openly and well, and the importance of, of just keeping those channels of communication 
open and the importance of people being able to come to you and say, hey, I, I know that, that it seems like we've decided we should do things this way, but this is my job. This is what I do. And it feels like we're going in the wrong direction on this set, or it feels like the way we're shooting yeah. this is I'm a DP. And I think the way that we're shooting this doesn't feel right to me, you know. Hey, whatever it happens to be, it's a thousand small decisions that feed into the the greater whole, and the ability yeah. to kind of to be open to all that communication and input from so many people who you're lucky enough to, as we were, to have people who are just some of the best people in the world at what they do, just to let them contribute what they know to the process and to open the process to those contributions. You you end up with something that's it's a whole lot better than anything you're ever going to come up with. If you play Moses on the mountaintop and come down and, and hand out commandments to people, because you're going to, you're going to get some things right that way and you're going to get more things wrong. Yeah. You know, whether it's a Timmy Van Patten or a Bernie Caulfield, who is our producer and partner on the show was from the second season on is still our partner today. And, and you know, someone who's just the best in the world at, at what she does. The only person that you could think of who could have actually, made something like this float for as, as, as long as it did. And, and our David Nutter, who's one of the all-time gods of, of television directing and just seeing how he approaches his work and his sets. And we, you know, we were just, we we're so lucky to, to have so many different brilliant craftspeople and artists and, and, and yeah. not even talking about the cast who we learned so much from as well and, and had such an amazing time with. A lot of it was there's a definite good fortune element to it. Like we ended up with mm -hmm. almost exclusively great people, people who really got along and people who worked together well over long periods of time under you right. know what could have been were tiring and stressful circumstances sometimes, but it was always a constructive, not just constructive, it was always just so much fun that nobody really thought about how how insanely like exhausted <laughs> they were like when the last time they got more than four hours sleep was and it was kind of in many ways sort of a charmed circumstance but you and david as sort of leaders of it clearly what you're saying is that your ears were open you were open to input you were open to championing other people's creativity and talents but was did you did you consciously think about i've got to keep people motivated inspired listened to thanked yeah there, there was a certain <laughs> human reality to it which is we knew on a basic human level that more continuity we had yeah the better better off we were you realize very early on that every time somebody new comes into the process and they need to be gotten up to speed on where you're at every year you go on that task becomes more and more difficult because there's where you're at encompasses a larger and larger patch of territory so right, explaining right. the lay of the land to people and you know in season six we did it and it, it, it actually ended up working out really really well with a lot of them but like it's, it's a lot harder than in season one so you realize that like keeping production designer costume designer or any of the of the people who are at the heart of the production keeping them consistent this keeping the same people involved was going to make the show better and then springing directly from that the same people are not going to want to do something this labor intensive year in and year out unless they enjoy it. So yeah, it's almost yeah. kind of, if things had gotten to the point where it wasn't fun anymore, it, it not being fun, that wouldn't be the only problem. The fact that people aren't having fun would also mean that people are just going to be moving on and making different career choices, different like life decisions other than like, yeah. instead of being with my family, I want to be in Morocco, Croatia, Spain, and Iceland this year, you know, like working, yeah. carrying 17 different kinds of like weather gear with me and staying in a different room every three nights. Like they, you know, they wouldn't have, if people didn't enjoy it, they wouldn't have yeah. made that decision. We needed for it to work as well as it could have possibly worked. We needed those people to be making those decisions. So it kind of, in a way, it steered all of us. And I'd say that David and I specifically towards trying to, and Bernie probably deserves more credit for it than anybody, to be honest, because she was instrumental in actually making the decisions that made it possible and still human and humane. She knew that yeah. if, you, if you were to beat people into the ground, those people are not, nobody wants to get beaten into the ground and nobody wants to come back to a situation where that's happening. So they wouldn't have. And I think it was, it was just, we, kind of got from a pretty early stage that that was crucial 
Yeah. Um, and it was crucial for us too. You know, we didn't, I think a part of the reason that it worked the way it did was because we all really w- could not think of anywhere else we would have rather been. Yeah. And that's a, that's a pretty professionally, like a pretty rare circumstance, even with stuff that ends up working out relatively well. There are times over the course of those processes where you would rather be somewhere else than where you're at, at that moment making something. But I, sometimes woke up tired. I sometimes woke up disoriented and not sure, you know, where specifically like in the world I was, but I never (laughs) woke up wondering why are we doing this? Because I couldn't think of anything else I'd rather be doing. Well, I want to get to your partnership with David and how you guys met and so forth. But first I want to go back a little bit further. Um, You grew up in Chicago, is that right? Yeah, I grew up in Highland Park, Illinois for most of my childhood, which is a suburb north of Chicago. And did you go to public school or private school there? Went to public school. I went to Highland Park High School which was, uh, I believe, appeared now and again in John Hughes movies back in the, back right. in the day. So did you have a Ferris Bueller-like high school experience? No, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, the John Hughes movies were always sort of aspirational <laughs> in, right. that, in that way. It was always like, yeah, maybe there's somebody that I know of who's living this way, but it sure isn't me. But uh, <laughs> it, was, it, was a, it was a great and fortunate place to grow up. And it was a, it was a, a really good public high school with some excellent teachers who, you know, my English teacher, Winnie Engerman, who first when I was 16 years old and her class, her classes, I would take, took all of her classes and she just encouraged me to kind of keep doing what I was doing, which was already by then reading a lot and Mm -hmm. writing a lot. And Mm. she, you know, it, it means a lot to you when you're 15, 16 years old to have somebody who's not your parents. Yeah. Somebody who doesn't have any direct interest in your your well-being as a person tell you that you should maybe keep trying and keep working on what you're working on because it's it's headed in the right direction. You know, it, it means a lot. And so you were creative writing at that point? These were stories or were they essays about things you were reading or? It was both. You know, mm-hmm. I would always kind of try to finagle a way to like turn something into a creative writing exercise, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. if it wasn't supposed to be because it was just always more enjoyable to me than the other kind of writing. Yeah, maybe because you could you could make up more, and you you didn't have to be quite as right. You just had to to fool people into thinking that you were right for the course of the story. You know, had to be an effective liar. Yeah. <laughs> From there, I went to Wesleyan University, where I was fortunate enough to early on come into contact with. Kit Reed, who was my writing instructor from the, I believe, from the time I was a freshman right through to my senior thesis project, and she was a singular influence and and just an absolutely such an amazing teacher of writing in that she really wasn't prescriptive hmm. it wasn't the kind of writing to her that was the way she didn't have like a, like a, a pinnacle in mind where she's like this is what you should be ascribing towards whatever that would be i think a lot of people who teach writing they have their favorite writers and they they feel hmm. like you should aspire to something of this nature kit always started with everybody i was in a bunch of so many classes with her and these classes were small. There were five or six people. So you really got a, a chance to know the people you were in class with. You got a chance to know who they were as people a bit and who they were creatively a lot. And she always really, the first thing she did was try to figure out what you wanted to do, what you were aiming for, whatever that was. It didn't matter if it was there were science fiction people, there were kind of kitchen sink realism people, there were weird, quirky fantasy people, one of whom was, I think it was the first class I took with her, maybe the second was Dan Handler, who went on to become Lemony Snicket. Hmm. And it was, it was so far ahead of everybody else in the class in terms of the level he was working at that it was, yeah. it was always really the nicest guy, but always very intimidating to read his work because like, we were all kind of on somewhere between the second and fourth floors and he was already like setting up his office in the penthouse you know, <laughs> with, with the, the quality of what he was doing. She kind of keyed into his sensibility or, or my sensibility or her sensibility, whoever was in the class, and she tried to help you do the best job you could do at the kind of thing you were trying to do, and that, that I thought was a pretty unique quality. And what was your sensibility back then as a writer? What, what was your sort of niche? I mean, I was, I was kind of all over the place, and it was part <laughs> of it. It took, it took me a while to... I had grown up reading genre stuff but then i in high school i started moving into more literary stuff and i liked james joyce and herman melville and kafka a lot but those they're still 
some of my favorite writers in the world that that influence doesn't always produce the best <laughs> the best undergraduate work out of the gate that might those yeah. influences might not immediately lead to uh, the most readable material <laughs> coming from someone who's 19 years old right. in my case they didn't luckily there was a little bit of kurt vonnegut in there so there were some people who wrote wrote in a more straightforward way that helped kind of keep things at least somewhat tethered to like earth <laughs> on a stylistic front but i was kind of searching around for what made sense for me and it was trying a whole bunch of different things and she was if you wrote a story about a divorcing couple one week she'd try to help you do the best job with that story if you wrote a story about outer space the next week she would shift gears with you and try to help you she was, was widely read enough and just kind of versatile enough to, to help everybody do as good a job as they could with what they were attempting. And she, uh, she actually, she passed away about a year ago. Huh. I, I know that so many people over the years who'd had her been lucky enough to, to work with her and get to know her and spend time with her and in her house, her and her husband, Joe, uh, were really felt the loss. Yeah, very deeply because she was just she was a, a very unique person and a wonderful writer who I would suggest I would suggest uh, ahead of her time in lots of ways or would suggest people seek out her her short stories uh, especially which are which are really excellent. And she was aware of Game of Thrones and your success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We stayed we stayed in touch the whole time, and it was there are people who helped you. Yeah, stick with what you were doing. Who would, it feels good if you feel like they know that you're out there doing this thing that they. You stayed on the path that they helped, yeah. you know, guide you down. And, and so it was really gratifying to know that she was aware of it and, and that she knew that she was, for whatever it was worth, was really instrumental in putting me in a place where I was able to even think about doing something like the stuff we were doing. And proud of you. Yeah, yeah, I, I think I think she was. You know, I, it's funny because I'd gotten a chance even well before Thrones to talk to her about because obviously the lemony snicket of it all precedes Game of Thrones. So it, I could tell how how proud she was of Dan because it is just such amazing singular voice that he developed. And mm -hmm. I think she was probably I can't speak for him, but I think she was probably really helpful in helping him feel the confidence to just keep doing what he was doing because what he was doing was unique it didn't it didn't sound like other people's stuff it didn't read like other people's stuff yeah and that ended up being his biggest strength but it you know it takes some courage to kind of keep going down yeah. that road that isn't the road everybody else was on so you graduate from wesleyan and you want to pursue writing and screenwriting is that right yeah i mean i i had always kind of done both fiction writing and screenwriting and over the years it's it just started to realize that I, I like doing them both and and the truth is i did them both and, and eventually uh, warner brothers acquired a script of mine and i realized that there was a career potential yeah. to it you know yeah there, there were there was an opportunity to you know because i by that point we were looking towards my then fiance and i were looking towards getting married and the realities of, of life and existing and of paying your mortgage and your bills start to dawn on you and and you know, yep. realized that like one of these is more viable, at least for me in, in the long run than the other one. So I, I leaned towards that, mm -hmm. but I'd always done both and it had been a, for a long time had bounced back and forth and not really sure which one made the most sense for me to focus on. But then you pursued a master's in Ireland. Is that right? Yeah. Ireland is where I met David. We were at right. Trinity College in Dublin at the, the master's in Irish literature, Anglo-Irish literature program, as opposed to Irish literature in Gaelic, which I unfortunately don't read. <laughs> but yeah, and we met there. Both of us kind of went with the intention of going down a very academic track. Like when oh, was that at right? that point, 1995, we had thought that we were going to be college professors. And at some point, I think over the course of that year, it was one of the best years we'd ever had. It was some of the most fun and also just most intellectually rigorous and intensive years we, we'd ever had. I think we just both simultaneously and independently of each other just started. We steered in a more creative direction, which we'd both been pretty heavily invested in to begin with. And so after Ireland, I ended up in Iowa at the MFA program for writing there. Hmm. And David shortly after that ended up in Irvine. About writers program mm -hmm. and then after i was done with iowa it dawned on me that if i wanted to do this if i wanted to work in film or in television that it was 
realistically a difficult thing to do unless you were out here. And so yeah. I, I came back and he was already here at Irvine. And so we'd, we'd stayed in touch intervening two years anyway. And so we just kind of, we found ourselves living a mile away from each other. Mm-hmm. And that's how we just kind of picked up from there. And as a partnership, it was forged then and then through this, the wild ride of Game of Thrones. Can you talk about what you bring to the partnership and what he brings? Are there things that he does better than you do? And you kind of go, gosh, I really rely on David to, to take care of this aspect of the project or things that you bring that, that he appreciates you for? I mean, we didn't, we never really took a kind of a, a departmental approach. It wasn't like, I'm going to write the outline and then you write the jokes. You know, it wasn't really it wasn't it. that kind of relationship. It was always kind of both of us trying to be versed enough in everything we were doing that if one of us were not around, the other one could take care of whatever needed to be taken care of and answer the questions that needed yeah. to be answered. I mean, answered. that's almost so, a more unique partnership is that you were sort of two halves of the same brain in a way. Yeah. And I mean, and I think it, it helps because obviously we have different, you're not the same person. So yeah. you're, you're not in a hundred percent alignment, but if you're, if you're 10 degrees apart, yeah. then that's good. Like your eyes are 10 degrees apart. That gives you stereo right. vision that like, you know, that, that actually you complement each other. And if I, right. I miss something or I think something's great and he thinks it's, it doesn't make any sense. It makes me, he's close enough. Our feelings about what works and what doesn't are close enough that if I, I'm thinking something's amazing and he's not responding to it. It's possibly he had a bad night's sleep and is having a crappy morning, or it's possible that like I need to re-examine what I what I think is great, you know, and, right. and and vice versa. Really going into it, there was no way, no way to know how entering into a, a situation like the one we entered into, how that's gonna work with somebody else until until you do it. I mean, we were very good friends, or else we never would have considered doing this to begin with but there are plenty of people who enter into things like this as good friends and leave it as good friends who will never work together again or leave it as uh, people who will never work together again who are no longer friends you know i mean they're the sad reality is that sometimes the situation like the one that we were in can really pull people apart if it doesn't work but it luckily for in our situation had the opposite effect and we ended up kind of co-raising all of our children together and being sort of like a strange like traveling commune when we were heading over there and it couldn't have worked out better but we we were fortunate in that we didn't we didn't know that it was going to be that way and i don't think there's really a way to to plan for it to be that way you can do your best and you can realize that it's a it's a long game and that stomping your feet over whether that shot cranes from left to right or right to left might not you know Maybe in the long run, it's not as important to die on any one of these smaller hills when you've got a big yeah. mountain to climb, you know? And I, I think that that's probably, I think we both kind of happened upon that way of, of dealing with situations where you realize that if, if he's really, really adamant about something and I find myself arguing against it just because that was what my first thought might have been, that maybe the strength of his convictions trumps what could have easily been, you know, just sort of a, a whim on, on yeah. or just whatever popped right. into my head first. Right. And vice versa. So if I'm, if I absolutely hate some line of dialogue or I insist that some line of dialogue is great and maybe he just says, okay, you care more about this. Usually yeah. the person we, if we get into the, you know, relatively unusual case where we, we really disagree about something. It's, it's almost always just one of us who feels a lot more strongly about it than the other one. Yeah. And also you, as time goes on, you, you come to realize that there are thousands and thousands of decisions that need to be made. You, you, you kind of need to take a long, a long view on how you make yeah. those decisions together. And once you, once you kind of nail down that basic way of approaching things, you know, it makes for something that's productive and like sustainable over a long period of time. And remove your ego as much as possible. That's, that I mean, nice. a big part of it is just, it's really just realizing, like, if I'm arguing about something, am I arguing because I really, truly have thought through all the possibilities and potentials here, and I know for certain that this is the best way to go, or am I arguing for it because I asked to choose A, B, or C, I chose B, and so now I'm tied up in this choice B, and I need to lay down my life for choice B, which I might have chosen differently if I had, you know, had eggs for breakfast instead of uh, 
instead of oatmeal, you know? So it really does. And if you, if you really search yourself, I think it's pretty frequent that you find that some of the things that you think you believe strongly didn't really originate in, in any kind of a real strong conviction or a studied approach to a question. It's just, it's what popped up. Once you realize yeah. that, it's very easy to let go of it because it's like if it just popped up, then I'll let go of it and something else will just pop up in another five minutes and we'll deal with that one when it comes. So to finish off, there are a few standard questions as part of the supporting cast. They relate to Los Angeles and we are known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So the first question is what is D.B. Weiss's favorite movie? It's a really difficult one. The answer to that is always always ends up being kind of like what's the of a handful, like 10 or 20 of them, like what's the last one I saw. So I'd, if I had to be honest, I'd say Jaws is kind of what Jaws, when I saw it when I was seven years old, mm. my father took me to the movie theater, surprised me. We saw Jaws when I was seven and it it just did something to my brain mm. that I, I remember the experience like it was not my earliest memories, but it's one of my earliest real vivid memories like that's still there like it was yesterday. I'm glad it was Jaws, which is also happens to be just one of the best movies ever made and not some crappy movie that just happened to mean a lot to me when I was seven. I got I got lucky that he that he chose that one. Was Jaws instructive and in then I mean one of the lessons of that movie is sometimes something is scarier when it's not shown. Don't show the shark right away. That's right. So many movies where I'll just I'll be watching them now and I'll be like, why are you showing the shark? We're five minutes into the movie. I, I don't want to see the shark five minutes into the movie. Did you utilize that? Whether it was the White Walkers or, or different things, did you try to utilize that a bit on Game of Thrones? Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Especially, you know, there are two questions. There's just like, don't show the shark because we can't afford to show the shark. <laughs> that was... I think that was the case in Jaws too, right? Reading, reading back over the details of Jaws, it was like we're not showing the shark because the shark is broken. Exactly. Which I mean, in hindsight, the, the happy accident that the shark broke is one of the things that made the movie as brilliant as it was. Yep. And then, but then you get to a place where you you have the the resources and the the wherewithal to show the shark as much as you want. And then, it, in some ways, it's harder because you need to exercise the restraint mm. in showing the shark or restraint in the way you show the shark. So I'm not just staring at a shark for 40 minutes because it's not scary yeah. or it's not moving or it's not impactful. Whatever effect you're trying to create with a piece of spectacle, if it happens for 20, 30 minutes in a row, uh, it's probably not that impactful anymore. Yeah. Yeah. A Jurassic Park when there's the cup of water and you hear the the pound of the yeah yeah right the dinosaur and you see the water shake that's scarier than actually seeing the dinosaur he rapidly became a master of that uh, as right. of so much else it's just about how you give the experience to people in a way that that makes it hit them the hardest secondly what is your favorite meal in los angeles is there a restaurant that you and your wife enjoy or something you make at home that you love I feel like if I tell people how much I like Sushi Park on Sunset, I'll never get into Sushi Park on Sunset again because it'll be <laughs> there's not that much out the door. We don't have a huge following here at the Sporting Cast. I wouldn't. <laughs> uh, uh, so I'd say that, that in terms of the place we go back to most often, it would be Peter Parks, Peter and Joanne Parks Restaurant on Sunset Sushi Park, which is unassuming and uh, the very best sushi I think in the in the city. And, uh, and I'm trying to think of where else. And we love Moza, you know, we, we, mm. live, we live nearby Moza. So it's always, it's been one of those places that's just stuck around and always been fantastic. Yeah. Melrose and Highland, right? Yeah. 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 Thirdly, what is your favorite place in LA? Is there a part of town or a... Is, is there any other place in LA besides this room I'm sitting in for the past <laughs> year? I, I, I feel like I've kind of just forgotten all the other... I mean, I used to love hiking in Griffith Park, but it's been a long time since I've done that. Yeah. I used to love going down to the beach. It's been a long time since I've done that. Maybe this summer, yeah. things open up, you know? To be totally honest, my one of my favorite places to go in LA was always the Arclight. You know, uh, now, sadly, at least for the time being, they've had to, to shut their doors, and I hope they can figure out how to reopen it and I get everybody who, who worked there and you know depended on it for a living back up and working and to get all the rest of us who depended on it for a great place to go watch movies with other people. Yeah. I hope for all of our sakes, the that somebody can figure out how to get it going again because that was just being honest about the places you spent the most time and went to the most often like always made made us really happy to go there last question so i am the as i mentioned the 
father of a two and a half year old. Actually, she turns two and a half today. Uh, happy ha half birthday. Happy half birthday to my daughter. Half birthdays matter when you're two. They do. They're, it's you, a big you deal for her. To count. You get to count the half birthday. That's right. And, um, and with another on the way, I'm always curious about people's parenting advice and you're a father. What is your best parenting advice, either that's an original to you or that's been passed on to you? I'm wondering if you asked my my sons whether I should be giving parenting advice. I'd be curious to hear what they would say. <laughs> yeah, I just, you know, it, it's, I think for the lot of us, whatever we do, maybe stepping outside my area of competence here and making assumptions about people I don't know, but I feel like a lot of us are busy and, and a lot of us, the balance between work and life becomes really difficult as yeah. especially as your kids get older and they rely on you more not just to to be there but to actually help give them advice about things going forward help guide them going forward and one thing that has been a pretty great byproduct of this otherwise pretty crappy situation that we've all been in is I've gotten to spend a lot of time with my kids that I just I know in the natural course of life and work and what we do, it just wouldn't have been as many actual hours spent with them, not even necessarily goal-directed or project-oriented, just being together yeah, and feeling the value of the time we got to spend together of its own right, you know, independently of anything we were doing, accomplishing. I've personally kind of felt how great and important that was. I'm grateful to have been given a chance to do it. I, I wish it had been under other circumstances, obviously, right. but it's just been just spend the time spent with them, I feel. I mean, I know it matters to me, and I like to think it matters to them. Well, Dan Weiss, thank you for the time you've spent with us today. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. And thank you for joining the supporting cast.